The Bob Murphy Show, episode 163. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this episode, I am doing a repeat, but it's something most of you probably haven't heard before. Mark Connolly who is the host of the More Christ podcast out of Dublin, is uh, interviewing me. And it's during the course of the interview, I made the decision. So you know what, this is, he's asking some really good stuff here. And I think I'm just going to rerun this as an episode of the Bob Murphy Show. So there's some theological things that we get into that I don't normally talk about, which might interest some of you. But it's even for those of you who are not interested in the religion stuff, I get into some issues uh, with Mark here that I haven't, to my knowledge, talked about, certainly not in the podcast, and I don't think ever. So you might want to check it out. Without further ado, here is my discussion with Mark Connolly on the More Christ podcast. Hi, welcome to More Christ. This is a channel dedicated to Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox alike. Today, I'm joined by Bob Murphy. Robert P. Murphy is a senior fellow with the Mises Institute. He's the author of many books. His latest is Contra Krugerman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. His other works include Chaos Theory, Lessons for the Young Economist, and Choice, Cooperation, Enterprise, and Human Action, which is a modern distillation of the essentials of Mises' thought for the layperson. He's also the host of The Bob Murphy Show. Um, just to let us begin then, Bob, if we may, uh, I want to talk about your origin story. Can you tell us a bit about your background and some of the key currents that have made you the man that you are now? Sure. So as far as my political views, that's easier for me to summarize. Um, in junior high, my dad was listening to Rush Limbaugh on the radio. And so, you know, when he would drive me around and had it on and I started, and so that was really, I want to say like seventh grade maybe was the first time I had been exposed to the concept of just because the government legislates something or has some, puts in place some policy with certain stated intentions, it doesn't mean that that's actually going to be what happens. And I, I realized that sounds funny that it took me to seventh grade to even be aware of that possibility, but that's what it was. And so from that, my dad also had this thing, this digest called the Conservative Chronicle. So this was before the internet, or at least before regular people use the internet. And um, so this came in the mail, and it was just a, a weekly compilation of all of the conservative op-ed columns that had run in the country from like Mona Charon and Cal Thomas, people like that, if, if some of your listeners know those names. But the ones that I liked the most were Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams, who were libertarian economists. And so that's when I realized, okay, I'm not really conservative, I'm libertarian, and I just got more and more interested in uh, free market economics. And, and so then I went to, uh, I just started reading more, and then it was the Austrian school that really fascinated me. Um, and so then I, I knew as of high school that I wanted to be, uh, you know, an economist, college professor, economics professor, and that moreover, it was going to be the Austrian school. Like I, I read Human Action my senior year in high school, and I knew this is what, this is what I got to do. Um, as far as my religious views, I was raised Catholic. Um, I sort of fell out of that 
over time. The the church that I went to, like, I don't think they were particularly doctrinaire. Like, I think even like some of the younger priests, you know, who would get up there and, you know, give homilies on Sunday may have thought as the, of the devil as like a metaphor, you know, like that, they never said that, but I'm just saying, I, I think that's probably the case. So I fell more into like, I was real scientific and I loved like Richard Feynman was my hero and I was a man of science and rationality. I like Thomas Paine, his at the age of reason, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I called myself a devout atheist by the time I was in undergrad. Uh, and then though I had an epiphany after some personal stuff going on in grad school and I realized there was a God actually after all. And, and I explored things and, you know, I considered Hinduism and Buddhism, but to me, just like, no, I, Christianity still made the most sense. And at some point I, uh, I eventually, you know, accepted Jesus as my savior and that's, that's where we are nowadays. Yeah. Wonderful. Unfortunately, that, um, description of the Catholic priest sounds all too familiar and, I don't know if you know the book. There's a great book about the kind of uh, humanitarian religion of today by um, Mahani, an American author. He's written about that and how like a lot of people, even the modern Pope and stuff, kind of fall into this more humanitarian religion. Kind of just dovetails of what you're saying. Um, I'd love to ask you now specifically about anarcho-capitalism. So you mentioned mm-hmm. the Austrian school and things like that. Well, for those that maybe aren't aware, what is anarcho-capitalism and um, why do you think it's important for Christians to come to grips with this idea and this philosophy and way of life? Okay, sure. So I believe Murray Rothbard coined the term. And so it's, it's obviously combining anarchist and capitalism in, into a, you know, or anarchism and capitalism. And so the idea is it's, the you know the sort of libertarian free market mindset, except applied anarcho-capitalist would argue consistently, right? So there's a lot of people who call themselves libertarians, particularly in the United States context of the, you know their political culture, who they still believe like in the Constitution and you know oh the, the governments exist to protect life and liberty, you know to enforce the rule of law that sort of thing. But if they move beyond that, you know then it's illegitimate. You know that that, that sort of argument, like kind of like what Bastiat laid out in his booklet, The Law, if, if any of your listeners are familiar with that. So the anarcho-capitalists are, argue that, no, that's that there's an inconsistency there that, for one thing, if the state is allowed to exist and to have a monopoly on the legal system, you know, wh- where's that coming from? Okay, you know, like you wouldn't let the government have a monopoly on producing cars and you could recognize that that would be bad, that the cars would be of shoddy quality and, you know, higher prices than they need to be. So why do you want the government to provide police or courts? And 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 so obviously the immediate reaction to that would be, well, because those are qualitatively different things and you need to, you know, and, and I, so I know the arguments and I'll, you know, let you guide this discussion. I don't know how much you want me to get into in terms of the back and forth. But as far as from a Christian perspective, why do I think that's important? I, I should clarify. So it's true. If somebody asks me, oh, are you an anarchist? And especially like if I'm at a libertarian convention, I will say yes, because I know what they mean. They mean do you believe, you know, that there should be no coercive state period or are you a minarchist? But I don't think of myself as an anarchist, you know, because I actually have a king, right? It was Jesus. And so I don't volunteer that term. I describe myself as a voluntarist or, you know, someone who believes in nonviolent social mechanisms or something, you know, things like that. But that I, you know, so I don't use that term to volunteer to describe myself. But yes, that is the philosophy and I still do think that's correct. So from a Christian perspective, I would just say like, do, do you think that it's legitimate to use 
the threat of violence against people who have not themselves threatened anybody and just about everybody without even needing to think about it would say, of course not. And I say, okay, so then where, what happens to taxation in that framework, All right? Because under taxation, there could be somebody who says, no, I don't want to give my money to this particular cause and they're not a lawbreaker. You know, it's not that the person robbed a bank or something. It's just, they say, no, I, you know, and it could be something serious too. Like I don't want to fund abortions or I don't believe with U.S. troops going in this particular war overseas and I don't want my money funding that. And yet, you know, under this premise of taxation, you can be punished for that. And so um, that's just one example. And like I said, too, that alternate things, if someone wants to set up a rival, you know, judicial system or whatever, uh, that is not allowed right now in the current system. So it's, I, I would say it from, from that point of view. And then also, too, just, uh, and we can get it, I don't know how much you want to get into this, but I think there is biblical support for that, that, you know, God obviously famously in, you know, in the Old Testament tells the children of Israel, you, you don't want a king like the other nations. You know, you want to keep it where I'm, and you know, he tells them what's going to happen if they go down that route. So I think there's plenty in there uh, to to show. And I guess the last thing I'll say, just to deal with one possible objection, this is not a rosy-eyed view. Like, so, you know, some Christians who believe in at least a night watchman or a limited government state would say, oh, because of human nature, you know, man needs to be restrained. So anarcho-capitalism is not saying there's no laws or there's no law enforcement or even there's no military. It's just saying, why would you give this group of people over here a monopoly on that stuff? Mm-hmm. And, and so it's the, that's the idea. Yeah, marvelous. Thank you, Bob. And um, regarding the science, as it were, of economics, uh, why is it important for Christians to be familiar with that? I guess you've already spoken to a bit of it so far. And um, I also wonder about... This is theological notion that you see in some writers, economia, they use quite broadly. So um, Wendell Burry, I think, uses this, and uh, the Russian Orthodox, Father Sergius Bulgakov, uh, uses the term as well in one of his books. So I was wondering, what's the place for the science of economy, as we, of the economics as we know it now, and this broader notion of economy, and how, we'd, how are we as Christians to measure costs within that perspective, as it were? Okay, so just in terms of, you know, why would Christians care about economics? I mean, there's a sense in which just any human discipline, like, oh, why, why should Christians care about chemistry or why should they care about botany? Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, well, it's an area of human inquiry and, you know, it's the wonder and beauty of God's creation. And, you know, so it's just interesting and fruitful to go look at how, you know, the certain, quote, laws unfold in these different domains and so when it comes to human affairs, uh, I would say the proper study of economics, which would include what used to be called political economy, you know, back, I guess, like in the 1700s, let's say, um, early 1800s, maybe, uh, you know, discovering these regularities. And it's so it's sort of inseparably linked with notions of political philosophy. So I want to be clear, economics is a science, but it's, you know, it's, it's very strongly connected with political issues oftentimes. And so to see, to, you know, to understand, oh, wait, imposing a minimum wage law actually doesn't help poor people. It actually makes it harder for, you know, someone with low skills to get a job in the first place, that sort of thing. Or the government coming in and regulating the banking sector far from making things more stable actually might cause the boom-bust cycle, you know, if you believe in the Austrian theory of what causes that stuff. So it it helps you to understand I would say like what power hungry, you know, 
devious individuals are going to try to get away with in the political sphere, like to just understand cause and effect and realize that no, what they're saying does not follow. And because that's the rhetoric they will use to get people to do things that prima facie are immoral. Like, oh, you know, uh, sure, in a perfect world, we would let business owners set whatever policies they want with regard to wage contracts with their employees, but there's too much poverty. So that's why we got to step in and, you know, at gunpoint basically tell people, no, you got to change your contracts. You have to you have the minimum wage. So I'm saying to, since the arguments they're using to justify these things that are prima facie invasions of human liberty are wrong, but you need to know economics to, to see that. All right. So there's that element. And just more generally, I would say the type of economics that I endorse really underscores the fact that when you leave people, when you don't interfere with them violently or with threats of coercion, the outcome is much better than when you do that. And even when it comes to things like, you know, their greed and how the the capitalist system harnesses that. So somebody who's really greedy in a capitalist system, he sits awake at night trying to figure out how do I please my customers? Whereas in a different type of system, you know, he might think, how do I get these six politicians to sign off or get this military general to go along with my plan for takeover? Okay, but in a genuine, you know, free market, the way even somebody who doesn't care per se about other people who just is looking out for numero uno is actually the system leads that person to sit around thinking, how do I make people happier, at least according to them? Um, So to me, it's a great example of like how God works, you know, with famously with Joseph that, you know, saying to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God used for good. And and likewise here that I I think it's there's social harmonies and. It, it just, you know, studying economics, you can see how, oh, wait a minute, even though people are fallen, this system, you know, if you don't introduce violence into it, actually it takes what our vices and and sort of harnesses them for into virtues. Excellent. Um, I think this comes across really well in your work too. And to some of those writers that you mentioned, like Tom Sowell, um, they show that this is more compatible arguably with man's fallen nature rather than the unconstrained vision as he calls it mm-hmm. which um sort of claims the moral high ground but then if we are to follow what our lord said to uh, judge thing people by their fruits then the fruits of some of these initiatives that you show we'll talk about some of these later like rent control even which are argued on moral grounds actually are more uh, harmful in the long term for people and uh, i think christians should know for that reason as well if that makes sense so i'm glad but, but, yeah and, and also too i mean just to underscore the point so as, as a Christian, like you have a duty to help the poor, for example, but that's not the same thing as voting for politicians who are going to raise taxes on rich people to increase funding, you know, for welfare payments. Like it means, no, you should, if you want to do that, then out of your means, go ahead and give to a soup kitchen or, you know, whatever philanthropic organization you want. But you're you're not following the Sermon on the Mount by telling people with guns to go take money from somebody else to hand that out to people. That's that's not generosity to have other people give their money against their will to somebody. Excellent, yeah. Um, Yvonne Illich talks about this too, about the corruption of the best things turn out the worst. So whenever a charity is, they do try to um, be charitable through these administrative structures. They actually create the worst evils and then you have all these bureaucracies where people are getting overpaid and the charity is not, uh, the money or anything, and resources are not going to the people. And uh, I think Christians need to take that into account too, just in line with what you say. 
Um, just moving on then, but I want to talk to, to you about your own story a bit more, Bob. Are there any persons who've been especially inspirational or influential from your life that you care to tell us about? Um, sure. I mean, <laughs> I guess uh, it's, it's somewhat embarrassing to you know to to think like this, but yeah, uh, there was a a science teacher. I think he was my seventh and eighth grade one, and he you know he really like I would go to the side and we would talk about like. Einstein's relativity and things like that and quantum physics. So that was, you know, a, a good influence early on, like, you know, to just kindle my, my interest, like to, to read stuff that was outside just whatever we were learning in class and, you know, to, to go get books, you know, from the bookstore on that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I still remember, you know, that guy, uh, not of course that I ever knew him personally, but again, R Richard Feynman, the physicist really inspired me, you know, just cause he just was such an interesting guy and would, it was very, intellectually curious and just his approach to everything. I just fascinated me. You know, he, he was in his dorm room one time and he saw some ants like getting, like there was some syrup or something he'd spilled on the windowsill and he saw like there was a line of ants going back and forth. And so he just started doing experiments to see like taking pieces of paper and letting the ant crawl on it and then moving the ant far away in the room and putting it down to see, does the ant know how to get back? You know, the little things like, like just doing experiments to try to figure out how the world work. And I just, you know, thought that was great. Um, and also he was so irreverent that when he was working on the Los Alamos project, which, you know, shouldn't have been doing, but in later he did regret it, but he would do, he figured out a way that if they left their safes ajar, he could go in and read, you know, by, by just pretending he was absentmindedly fiddling with the combination. Like he realized the way the gears lined up with the, if the door were open, you could quickly go in and read off the combination. And, and so then, you know, that's a pretty huge security flaw. And then he, uh, he went into the top general on the base or whatever and said, yeah, I know how to crack this safe. And the guy said, what? And he closed it and locked it and said, I'm going to sit here and you're not going to do it. And so Feynman actually just knew the guy's combination already, but he was acting like he was breaking it, you know, cracking it cold. And so then he opened it and the general, of course, was the guy might not have been a general. I don't remember what he was, but, and the guy was astonished. And so, and Feynman, you know, told him what the, what the trick was and said, actually, you know, I didn't just crack it cold earlier, you know, in the week I had read off your comment. I knew it all along. And so, you know, this is, you should. And so the military solution, when this was brought to their attention, was to send them, they didn't change the safe, so the company they used, they sent out a memo to all the people saying, if Dr. Feynman has visited you within the last year, change the combination on your lock. That was the way they dealt with that security flaw. So anyway, that, that just, you know, that kind of thing. You can see how that inspired my present worldview. Um, is, Murray Rothbard was the biggest person in terms of my political philosophy and economics and just, you know, me trying to write, like saying, oh, that's how I want to, you know, that's what I want to be when I grow up in the sense that he was so clear. It's not that I agree with everything he said, of course, but there was no doubt in your mind what Rothbard's argument was, you know, he laid it out nice and clear. And you, so you knew whether you thought he hit the essential things or if he had a non sequitur or if he was leaving something important out. Um, so that, you know, he was clearly the biggest influence in terms of that. Um, in, in Mises, in terms of my, my view on the world, his book, Human Action. So it wasn't just an economics book, but he was, Mises would get into stuff like, why did the Roman Empire fall? Well, because of the barbarian invasions. Okay, but they had been beating back the barbarians for centuries. Why did that stop happening. Oh, it was because of the price controls and the people left the cities and whatever, and they welcomed them. But, you know, so just going in and using economics to try to explain things like it was just, you know, I'd never seen anything like that before. It was, it was interesting. Um, and then as far as on the religious side, so a huge one was um, this one 
pastor that I found back when I, you know, went came back to the faith and I bounced around a little bit and then ended up at his church. And he was just really on fire. And uh, he, he he was an immigrant, and so he had this this awesome accent. And he you know he would pray to me like, oh heavenly Father, you are the Alpha and the Omega. Oh, you know, I just he was with full of fire. And I was like, whoa, yeah, that's like I when I was younger, you know, I would go to church and be waiting for it to be over so we could go home and watch football or something. Whereas with this thing, when I was going to this church, like I would, I had to drive like an hour and 15 minutes just to get to it. I would go early to set up the chairs because they, they were poor. And so they, you know, they were like using a gym or something that somebody was letting them use. So we had to set the chairs up, have the service, then break it all down. And I would, so I mean, church would be like a six hour affair every Sunday and I couldn't, you know, wait for it. So that's, that was a big thing as, as well. Um, I, I guess one more name I'll just throw out uh, is uh, R.C. Sproul. I, I don't necessarily endorse everything he says theologically, um, but just his style and his approach. Like I really liked, you know, how he was very, you know, trained in philosophy and and you know, you know, so just showing it's it's not that you can know secular things and then that just helps you better understand what the Bible is saying. It's it's not that there's this dichotomy. Um, but of course, you know, the ways of the world lacking the gospel, you know, are, are flawed. Mm, marvelous. Thank you for that, Bob. I, um, I want to move on to your, your recent book then, Contra Krugman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. So um, you did this over a number of years with Tom Woods. I was wondering what um, motivated you to tackle the ideas of Krugman particularly and so comprehensively? And especially that um, kind of Keynesian economics. Sure. So I had been writing critiques of Paul Krugman columns for years before Tom Woods was the one, you know, who's the co-host on that podcast, before he pitched the idea to me that, you know, we ought to do, Bob, is start a podcast where every week we take apart Krugman's column. And I actually was initially opposed to it. When Tom first pitched the I remember I was in a parking lot, like I was going to the store and he texted me, can you talk for a minute? I, you know, I pulled over and took the call. And I remember when he first proposed it, I was thinking, no, I don't want to do that because, you know, we'll be pigeonholed. Like we won't be our own people. We'll just be the people, you know, the guys that hate Krugman, that kind of thing. And we'll be letting him set the agenda. But the more he talked about it, he he convinced me like, do you know how many people would love this thing? And I realized, yes, look at this joy we're going to bring to (laughs) to people. And this will be a popular podcast. Yeah, let's do it. So that's um, partly what happened there. But the reason you know, where he got the idea and why he thought I would be the perfect guy to be the co-host was because I had already established that I was an expert on the thought of Paul Krugman. In other words, like he would say something and I would, I would say, Oh, that's funny. Krugman argues this in this column because three years ago he said this, like I just remember, you know, for whatever reason. So if the question is, why is it that I sort of honed in on Paul Krugman and would tackle his columns and became sort of like a, you know, cottage industry expert on the guy. um, I, I think it's because, so for one thing, he, you know, he won the Nobel Prize at one point. I think I had been writing about his stuff before then, but certainly that that helped that to say, you know, you know he's someone that we got to grapple with. And also he's not stupid. And that's the thing. A lot of critics of Krugman are like, oh my gosh, Bob, this guy's such an idiot. And no, he's not. If he were an idiot, I wouldn't have, you know, bothered critiquing his columns and Tom and I wouldn't have had a podcast devoted to him. He's actually very intelligent and clever. And it's, that's, I think, partly why he believes such absurd things right? Because he's, in other words, like the fact that what he's saying so much goes in the face of common sense doesn't phase Krugman because he thinks he's so smart that no, common sense is wrong. If what I'm, if most people, when they hear my idea, think I'm a nut job, 
that's just because that shows how brilliant I am. Like that's what he thinks. Whereas somebody who is not so gifted academically might be more humble and realize, wait a minute, if what I'm saying flies in the face of common sense, maybe I made a mistake somewhere in my reasoning. Uh, there's a thing like that in, in a, a Stephen King novel with, in, I think it was Firestarter, where the the dad of the girl who can start fires, his his like power, he can kind of like give the power of suggestion to people. Like, like I think they call it a push or a nudge or something in the book. I forget. And it 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 says that he can do that better with more educated people. Like he can manipulate their minds better. And at first I thought, well, no, that doesn't make sense. You'd think smarter people would have more willpower, but I think it was trying to show, no, because people who are more educated, you know, they're used to believing crazy things. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, or counterintuitive things. And so this guy can implant an idea. And as long as he convinces you that, no, there's a rationale for this, you would go do something that like was against your, you know, upbringing or whatever. So anyway, that's just my off uh, tangent on that. Uh, and also Krugman actually is a, is a very clear writer. And so he's kind of like Rothbard, except, you know, coming from the other perspective that there's no doubt about what Krugman's position is and why he says this is, you know, the, the case. You don't have to sit there and say, what does he mean by that? You know exactly what he means. Like when he does, you know, it comes up with really exaggerated examples, like the case for stimulus. Oh, if we were worried that there was a fake, you know, if there was an alien, if we thought there were an alien invasion, even if, but there really was, wasn't one, then governments would spend money, you know, building up our military, whatever, and that would get us out of the Great Recession. And then, oh, wait a minute, phew, good. There's actually no aliens that we can push the weapons into the ocean and we'd still be richer than if we didn't have that erroneous belief in an alien invasion. So stuff like that where he he doesn't, he, he leaves no doubt about what his position is by coming up with real exaggerated examples. So that's why he's a, a good foil. Excellent. And uh, more broadly then, what is Keynesian economics and what are some of its biggest failings then? Sure. So the term Keynesian goes back to John Maynard Keynes. So his famous work was 1936, The General Theory. Uh, and and so what he was doing there was why he called it the general theory is he was saying, oh, the the classical economists, like the free market people, it's not that they're wrong. It's just the stuff they talk about, Keynes argued, was only applicable to a special case when the economy was at full employment. And so he kind of put a box around them. He said, what I'm offering is a more general theory that works for all economies, whether they're at full employment or not. And so he was saying, that's why these so-called classical remedies in the, you know, because it came out in the midst of the Great Depression in the 1930s, he was arguing, you know, conventional economics is lacking here. You need my more general theory to understand. So the the basic Keynesian diagnosis when an economy is in a recession is that there's inadequate demand, that businesses and consumers aren't spending enough, whether on investment or consumption. And um, so normally what would happen in that scenario is interest rates would fall that would prompt more spending and then that would restore employment to its normal or to its full level. But if you're in what's called a liquidity trap, then interest rates fall and they hit 0% and yet you're still not at full employment and then the economy just gets stuck, left to its own devices that can't get out of that hole. And that's why the Keynesians are, but there's, there's a role for the government to then step in and run budget deficits to you know fix that gap in, in total spending. So that's, you know, that's the basic idea. Um, and, you know, some of its flaws, I'll, I'll list, I guess, just two. So from a theoretical level, I think the problem is the, the Keynesians don't spend much time on wondering why is it that we're in this rut in the first place? Like, why is it that aggregate demand all of a sudden collapsed 
they just sort of take it as like, no, it just is. And then what do we do? We got to get out of this. And then later, once we fix the the employment problem, we can worry about long-term issues. But for right now, you know, this is triage. We got to do something. The patient's really sick. Um, so, the, and the reason that's relevant is if the Austrians are correct in what causes the business cycles, the Austrians say the business cycles caused by, um, there's an artificial unsustainable boom period first driven by uh, monetary inflation that leads to interest rates being artificially low and giving the wrong signals to entrepreneurs. And then because of that, a bust is inevitable that like there's male investments being made during the boom period. So that can't continue physically. There's just not enough resources for all these projects to get over the finish line. So there has to be a crash. And the question is just when. And um, so if that's true, then the Keynesian remedy is just going to set up that cycle again, right? So, so that's one reason why I would say the Keynesians are wrong is if you understand the Austrian theory, you realize the Keynesians come on the scene in the fallout and the carnage from their previous policy. And then they look around and say, wow, the market screwed up again. Well, let's go ahead and pump in more money from the central bank and have the, you know, the, the central government run bigger budget deficits. And that's the exact wrong thing to do if the Austrians happen to be right. So there's that element. And then just empirically, um, I mean, just, I'm not gonna be able to do it to you right now off the top of my head, but just the numbers don't work. Like for what the Keynesians will tell you as to why things were so awful in the early 30s, they should have been even worse in 1920 and 21. Like prices fell faster in a 12-month period from 2021 than at any 12-month period in the 30s. The central bank, the Fed in the United States raised interest rates to record high levels in 20 and 21, whereas during the 30s, they cut them to record low levels. Um, the federal government slashed spending in 2021 because it was the end of you know World War I, so they were pulling down the military. But So for all the reasons Keynesians say the 1930s were a decade of depression, the 1920s should have been awful, but yet you don't see that. And so I think it just shows that the Keynesian story of you know how uh, liable to getting stuck in a rut the market is, is just demonstrably wrong and that there's something else was going on in the 30s. I guess the last thing I'll say is the, the you would expect from the Keynesian story that Herbert Hoover, you know, the U.S. president from 28 to 32, who was, you know, at the helm when there was the stock market crash and in the early years of the Great Depression and then famously lost his campaign to FDR. You would think from the Keynesian rhetoric that Herbert Hoover was this small government man who slashed spending. And that's misleading. The actual record you look at, they increased spending initially. And Hoover went around and told the labor unions, don't cut wage rates. And so that's what, caused the Great Depression to get so bad. It, so Hoover was unambiguously the most interventionist president in response to an economic downturn in U.S. history up to that point. So when you're trying to explain why did the Great Depression happen when it did, it doesn't make sense to blame it on, oh, because Hoover didn't spend enough. That you know, I mean, all his predecessors spent even less. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't, you know, it's, it's like if, if a plane crashed and somebody said, oh, it's because of gravity. Like that really, like, yeah, maybe that's involved, but that's that can't be the full story because gravity was applicable for all the other planes that didn't crash. So it's that kind of a situation. Mm, that's interesting. And um, from more recent memory then, in that book, you also cover things like Obamacare. Why should Christians be skeptical of such schemes? Again, whenever they're, especially when they're sold as the moral option or you have to be just and it's, it's things like that. Sure, so you know, Obamacare from a Christian perspective, I would say 
if, if there is a Christian who's supporting it, presumably it's because they think, you know, oh, it's our duty, you know, it's the right thing to do to help those less fortunate. And geez, there's people that are falling through the cracks of the, you know, the system pre-Obama that, you know, they don't have employer-provided insurance and medical bills on your own are just ludicrously expensive. You need insurance and you, you know, so that sort of thing, or you can't get coverage because you have a pre-existing condition. So I understand all that. And that's, it is true that the system as of 2007, let's say, really was screwed up. And I think conservative Republicans especially were uh, playing into the hands of the interventionists, people like Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, when they made it look like, no, basically, you know, we got the greatest healthcare system in the world. And, you know, just there's a, a few little tweaks here and there. We get, No, the system really was screwed up. And the way hospitals bill and things, it's just, it's nutty. Like when my... Uh, wife was pregnant, we, I, I tried calling around to, to just get a sense of, okay, if, you know, how much is this going to be, you know, for, for a regular without, you know, without contingencies and things, just normal delivery, what's the bill going to be? And, you know, they, they couldn't tell you. All right. And, and it's um, like on principle, you know, so it's like, and then I read some article about some ladies, some journalists who tried to do that. And she called around to eight different places and like one place gave her a quote and the other seven wouldn't even give her a number. And even the place that gave her a quote said, now this is not, you know, we're not guaranteeing this. It depends what happened. So the point being like, imagine if the car market worked like that. Like what if you had to buy a car and after the deal was done and it was your car, then the dealership told you how much you owed them. Like, don't you think car prices might rise in that kind of environment? And that would be kind of nutty. So that's what the U.S. healthcare system was like, you know, as of 2007. And it still is like that. So there's clearly something wrong, but I would say um, the way to fix it is not by introducing more coercion. The problem is there's too much government involvement right now in healthcare. And so, yes, it's imperative to help the disadvantaged, you know, especially like the sick and the poor, but you need to know how to help them, right? If you're just dabbling, if you're making the problem worse and moreover doing it in ways that are clearly prima facie immoral, that's certainly not a good thing to do. And what I mean by the prima facie moral is, among other things, the Affordable Care Act said, you have to get health insurance coverage or else the IRS is going to fine you. And, and, the, and the fines ramped up over time, so they got to be pretty high. And so then you had this really absurd situation where there were some people who, the, you know, they, they made enough money that they weren't eligible for complete subsidies, and yet the insurance plans that were available to them were really expensive, and so they just decided looking at the numbers, I would rather not pay and just be uninsured, even with after the Affordable Care Act was was law. So there was still, it's not that everybody had it, even though people claimed that. No, there were still some people, like younger people typically, who were in decent health, who just looked at the numbers and said, no, I, I don't want to pay these premiums. I can't afford that. There wouldn't, you know, after I paid those premiums, there wouldn't be enough left for my rent and groceries. And so then not only did they not have health insurance, then the IRS came along and fined them for not having health insurance. And this was the so-called Affordable Care Act regime. Yeah. And uh, I think another one like that, which might take people in, but is actually immoral in the way it's handled, is to do with climate change and the kind of hysteria. You've done some really great stuff about this. I watched about uh, your critiques of the supposed Green New Deal and things like that. Uh, what role does climate change play in the kind of status agenda 
as it were, and how might Austrian economics approach what many people consider now uh, like an existential crisis and get very panicky about it and want to do want to do something to help but are kind of maybe misled? Sure. So again, this is another area, particularly for you know Christians who are more politically liberal, but you know are, are Christians, they, where they say, "Oh, we're supposed to be stewards of the environment," and you know, look, our, you know, we're polluting lakes and rivers, and you know, look at the plastic waste in the ocean, and this is you know, and the, the, with climate change and so on, all these fire. So I understand all that, but again, it's similar to what I was saying about healthcare. You have to actually, if what you're going to say is, "Oh, because of these." environmental issues, we are going to respond doing X, Y, and Z. It's not enough just to say because the labels on this legislation say that X, Y, Z is going to help these problems. Like you actually have to go and look intellectually to know, is it the case that doing X, Y, and Z is going to help here? And so that's where I'm going to say with a lot of these policies pushed in the name of fighting or mitigating climate change, when you, the more you look into it, the more you realize, no, they don't. And further, the more you investigate, the more you see a lot of this stuff it just so coincidentally seems like it expands the government's power over everybody in the guise of fighting climate change. And so as Christians, I would say, you know, you need to be aware that, right, man, human nature has fallen. And uh, <laughs> and so just because somebody's saying we're doing this for the general good or for the environment, you can't take them at their word. Go look for yourself. So when it comes to climate change, uh, for example, my favorite one to go to now since this occurred is uh, – Recently, when, at this point now, I'm forgetting what year it was, but um, William Nordhaus won the Nobel Prize in Economics. He was a co-recipient, but the year he won it, he got it for, um, he, he pioneered work in the economics of climate change. Like Nordhaus came up with one of the models that was early on in terms of looking at this stuff like with carbon dioxide emissions and what does that do to future temperature and how does that interact with economic growth and so on. So he wins the Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on climate change, the same, I think it was the same weekend that that announcement came out is when the UN also put out its special report on the goal of limiting total global warming by the year 2100 to 1.5 degrees Celsius, right? And there were some newspaper accounts that linked the two things because they seemed to be compatible, right? So there was a New York Times piece, you know, giving the announcement, you know, William Nordhaus and whatever the person was, I forget, win Nobel Prize for work on climate change. UN releases new report on, you know, the need not just to have a two degree cap, but a 1.5 degree cap would really be ideal. That would, you know, spare us so much in ravages of climate change, blah, blah. And so you would certainly think from all that that Nobel laureate William Nordhaus's work supported the UN goal. And in fact, William Nordhaus's work showed that the optimal amount of, of global warming to allow was something like three degrees Celsius. Now, I know for your listeners, if you're not into this, you say, oh, it's just a couple of, but no, that is a humongous difference. But beyond that, his his model also showed trying to limit it to 1.5 degrees Celsius would be so disastrous economically. Like that was so draconian and so much of an overshoot in terms of what's the appropriate trade-off between trying to limit emissions versus allowing, you know, fostering economic growth that the damage inflicted to humanity would be worse than if governments around the world did nothing and just let climate change rip. That's so that's not me talking. That's not, you know, some model from the Heritage Foundation. That's the William Nordhaus, who was a co-author with Paul Samuelson on a Keynesian, you know, a big Keynesian textbook for years, and who wins the Nobel Prize for his work showing the urgency and the need to fight climate change. That's what his work showed. 
was that the UN's goal was so ludicrous that it would be better if humanity did nothing rather than try to achieve the UN's goal. So that's that's the kind of thing what I'm saying, the disconnect between what the rhetoric was from these official channels like the UN. You know, this wasn't some crazy Marxist group or some, well, some people might say the UN is a crazy Marxist group, but you get what I'm saying. You know, this these were reputable outlets or whatever. And the last thing I'll just say on this one point is it I really my opinion of Nordhaus went down because I understand why he wouldn't stick his neck out. He just wins the Nobel Prize. I could see why he wouldn't volunteer and say, by the way, a lot of what everyone's doing in the official environmental movement is crazy. I could see why he'd keep his head down and not make enemies. But he was asked in the interview talking about, hey, you just won the prize. The last question from the New York Times reporter was, um, so what do you think? You know, the UN has come out with its plan to try to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. What do you think about that? So that would have been a good time for him to educate the public and say the public needs to know that's a disastrous idea there's trade-offs here and there's there's such a thing as limiting emissions too much. And my own work shows, you know, this would kill millions of people and blah, blah, blah. And instead he said, well, at this point, I think that that, that goal is, it's it's unattainable. Like we've already passed the point at which that's unrealistic. He didn't say it was a bad goal. He just said, yeah, the, you know, the, the barns, the, the horse is out of the barn kind of thing. So he, I was really like, it, it just, I thought typified uh, the relationship between modern academia and political movements. And so I'm sure the way he justifies it in his own view is, oh, I'm raising awareness. I know politically with all the opposition to these things, in reality, we're not going to put in place any mechanism that's going to re- remotely come close to the UN's goal. And so I'll just keep my mouth shut so that we're all, you know, we're all on the same team here trying to slow emissions. But still, it's, you know, to me, that was amazing that he's, giving a parent endorsement to a goal that, like I said, his own work shows would be a cure worse than a disease. So that, that's the kind of thing I mean, that in general with this stuff, you don't have to go to, quote, denier websites and, and get alternate facts. You can just read the reports of the mainstream people and it does not at all support the more aggressive measures that are being advanced in the name of fighting climate change. Mm. And um, just another one, if I may touch upon it, uh, minimum wages and fair fair wage and stuff stuff like that. Uh, You get all these words thrown around about justice and things like that. Why should uh, Christians support, say, an Austrian economic approach to things like minimum wage laws rather than, say, uh, people like Krugman or Keynesians and people like that? Sure. And so this is another area where uh, it's it's true. there's some nuance involved that there, it used to be the case that even regular economists, but from both the right and the left, as of like the early 1980s, agreed that if you have the minimum wage legislation increases unemployment among like teenagers who are trying to get a job, that, the, you know, that if you have a high minimum wage or if you raise the minimum wage level, then that's going to throw more teenagers out of work. And, you know, and they had empirical measurements, you know, to to assess how much, you know, given a 1% or a 10% increase in the minimum wage, this is how, whatever it's going to be, 1.5% increase in, in teenage unemployment or something. Um, so that used to be the, con- the, the conventional wisdom. Then it's true in the 90s, there was this wave of new research coming in that seemed to challenge those results. So I'm not conceding the legitimacy of the, those alternate frameworks, but I am just saying mainstream economists do think that that change happened. But even on its own terms, it was just showing, oh, you could have, uh, you know, like a 10% increase in the minimum wage and that wouldn't lead to a significant increase or, or a significant reduction in employment. 
that was what the, the you know these new results were showing is maybe you can get away with a modest increase in the minimum wage without causing disaster. And yet then, you know, progressives would run with that. And Paul Krugman, to his shame, I would say, would give interviews, like he would choose his language very carefully. So if you went and parsed it, he didn't say a sentence that was demonstrably false, but yet you would walk away thinking that like the drive for $15 an hour. So in the US, the minimum wage is $7.25, I think, maybe $7.15, but seven something. And people are proposing to increase it to $15 an hour. So that's, you know, a more than doubling of the minimum wage. There's no empirical peer-reviewed studies to my knowledge that would showed if you double the minimum wage, you wouldn't expect there to be a reduction in employment. To my mind, there's, you know, that that's not the kind of thing these studies, these, you know, these alternate studies or these, uh, you know, new minimum wage research is showing. They're all looking at like, like I said, 10% increases. That's a kind of shock to the variable that they're assessing. So it's again, the, the progressives, they go out there and that's what I'm saying. That's analogous to the, uh, the climate change stuff where, yeah, the conventional button down mainstream approach says there's a negative externality from carbon dioxide emissions, a, a modest carbon tax might improve social welfare. But then they take that and say, ah, oh, therefore, you know, let's do the Paris agreement. Let's, let's lock down and limit to 1.5 C when that doesn't follow at all. So likewise here too, yes, there's some results in the literature that show it wouldn't be so bad to have a slight increase in the minimum wage. And yet people are running around saying, oh, that's why we got to have a living wage. So we have 10, $20 an hour, depending on which activist you're talking about. So from a Christian perspective, yeah, the, the main thing is, again, the tool you use has to actually achieve the desired outcome. And so if it actually is going to throw a lot of poor people out of work, it's not obvious how you're helping them by having this big increase in the minimum wage. And also too, just again, just think about the nature of what you're doing. You're sitting comfortably in your house and you've got your standard of living and you are concerned about poor people somewhere else. And the way you're going to help them is say, hey, the people who right now are employing them, you better pay them more money out of your pocket or else we're going to fine you. Ah, that's why I feel good now. I went and did a good thing. And it's not clear, you, you know, you're not sacrificing anything to help them. You're just threatening. So it's sort of like, the one group of people in the world who are actually doing something for these people by giving them a job, they're the ones now being punished to do more, whereas everybody else who's voting for that, they're not lifting a finger to do anything to help these poor people. So I'm just trying to analyze and, and say, yeah, you, you don't actually have the moral high ground by just going and voting for a higher minimum wage that number one, at best, you're forcing other people to help the poor when you're still not doing anything yourself. And number two, arguably, you know, depending on how you fall down on that literature and what the results are, you're actually making it worse off for them. Hmm. Thank you for that. That's the most clarifying. Again, I think it touches upon the idea of Christ saying, by their fruits, you shall know them. So our modern kind of um, activism that's sitting around um, kind of virtue signaling and stuff like that whereas you're saying kind of in line with your scientific approach and everything that you've learned is to actually look at the data but I, I think um there's always this like tension because it's like there's a like a mythic quality to what these people are talking about like um say uh, someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and she's talking about the Green New Deal. It's, it's framed within this whole mythic framework, isn't it? And as Sol talks about that unconstrained vision, so they're not, like people won't listen to a careful argument and so on. Does that make sense? Like, right? Yeah, certainly in U.S. politics, and I'm sure it's like this, you know, around the world, that it, it tends to be very emotional, and so 
you know, it's it's cast as, oh, the, the reason you should be for the Green New Deal is because you want to save the environment, right? You know, isn't the environment a good thing? And, you know, it's like, oh, environment versus business or like you say, with the raising the minimum wage, it's typically cast as just, you know, oh, do you want to help poor workers or do you want to just boost corporate profits? You know, not not seeing that. Well, no, actually, if you, by the way, just for, in case some of your listeners have never heard the argument spelled out. So the, the, the problem with the minimum wage is the reason it, it doesn't necessarily work is it's not saying you have to give people a job. It's just saying if you do give them a job, you have to pay them at least this much per hour. So let's say there's a worker right now who only generates $10 an hour worth of output for his employer. So he gains, when the minimum wage is $7.15 or whatever it is, that person can easily get a job. And the employer pays him, let's say, you know, $9.50 an hour. Now, if we raise the minimum wage to $12 an hour, why is the employer going to keep that? You know, why would you keep someone on the payroll paying $12 an hour when the person's only generating $10 an hour worth of output for you? You would just lay the person off. Why, why would you lose money $2 an hour by keeping that person on? The law doesn't force you to keep the job. It just says, if they work for you, they got to get paid $12. So that, that's what I'm saying on its own terms. We just think through the logic of it. It's not clear. And so the only way it goes through, I think like the, the, the typical supporter of raising the minimum wage, the reason they support it is because they have this idea that, oh yeah, businesses just are swimming in money. They can afford to give more because they're the fat cat. And I want to say, even if that's true, yeah, Jeff Bezos could afford to give much more, you know, give higher pay to his employees, but raising the minimum wage doesn't force him to do that, right? It's, he still has the freedom to just lay them off if they're not generating, you know, the thing. So that's what I'm saying is even on its own terms, it's not clear how that's supposed to help uh, those people. And so then, yeah, they're not going to get uh, to the extent that they don't get their foot in the door. And that's the thing too. Just because you get hired at the minimum wage or at a low level doesn't mean you're stuck like that forever. Like for a lot of people, they got to prove themselves. You know, they get their foot in the door with a you know low-paying entry-level position, and then if they show up all the time, you know, shows that they know how to set their alarm clock, that they're not going to be you know tardy and whatnot. Then okay, they can get a promotion and get a raise, and that's that's how you get your foot in the door. Whereas if there's a high minimum wage, there's a lot of employers that wouldn't take the chance on some new new applicant who on paper you know, maybe doesn't have a high school degree and hasn't had a job before, why are you going to pay that person $15 an hour? That's that's too steep of a price just to take a gamble. Like, let's see if this kid's any good or not. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, Bob. Um, so I think in line with that, it's all it's very important that you have introduced people, like including Christians, to certain Austrian economics and Mises and people like that. And you've, you've made his work more easily digestible so human action is quite a huge tome very quite complex whereas you've uh, managed to kind of translate it for the rest of us with choice cooperation enterprise and human action you've also said about how um, he's inspired you and um, how important he is for economics but there are any specific areas however where you think Mises and other Austrians many of whom um, seem to be Jewish or secularist so like even secular Jews or whatever it is, where they fall short of a comprehensive and distinctly Christian understanding of economics. And I'm kind of wondering what difference the differences there might be with the theological differences, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, it's a great question. Well, let me throw, I don't know if I can come up with a, with a more fundamental answer, but I mean, certainly there's certain arguments that Mises makes that I think are non sequiturs. So for example, in human action, he has this famous passage where he's he's talking about the notion of action, you know, and so and so what that is for the listeners who don't know, 
what Mises means by action is like purposeful behavior. So, you know, you, if you take a rock and throw it up in the air, it has a motion, you know, you can see its trajectory and we can specify its position as a function of time, you know, according to the laws of physics and whatever, taking into account air resistance and whatnot. But you wouldn't say, oh, the rock wanted to go up and then it changed its mind and wanted to come down. That's not the way you talk about inanimate or, you know, I guess it's not inanimate, but you know what I mean? But mindless objects, you don't ascribe intentions and motives to them. Whereas it's totally normal if you saw someone driving one way and then the car does a U-turn and comes around, it's totally fine as a first level explanation to say, oh yeah, the driver wanted to go east, but then changed his mind and forgot something and turned around and wanted to go west. Like that's not an unscientific statement just to talk like that, right? So so that's action, you know, the, the purposeful behavior when you're attributing motives and intentions to things that you observe as a social scientist. That's what action is. And so Mises says um, the very notion of action implies that the the acting being is unhappy with the current situation. Like, so you act in order to improve things from your perspective. That's why, you know, that's the impetus to action, that you're, there's a, a, an un, a dissatisfaction, an uneasiness with the status quo. And so you're acting to change things. And, and Mises argues that, that idea, that concept is incompatible with the traditional, um, you know, monotheistic notion of an omnipotent God. And he's saying because, like, in other words, he's saying God wouldn't act because to do so would imply that at the original point, things were not the way God wanted. And so, you know, he had to act in order to make things better. But why would an omnipotent, perfect being, you know, have been in a situation originally where he didn't like the way that things were, right? And certainly you wouldn't expect God to act through time. If he did have to act, wouldn't he just fix everything with one in one fell swoop, right? So that, so that's an example of Mises' argument against theological, you know, certainly Christian, Judeo-Christian notions of God. So to me, that's non sequitur that like God's sort of outside the timeline looking down. And so, yeah, I, I would say it was one single action in a sense, you know, imagine like if God's like drawn a cartoon with different, uh, you know, boxes or, or showing stages of the or frames, I guess, you know, showing the different things as, as the time passes in the cartoon he could draw it all at once or he could even, you know, a human could draw the last frame first. It wouldn't matter. And from the perspective of the people in the cartoon, it would look like God was working through time, even though from his perspective, he did it all at, at once. You know, so that to me, that's just kind of how, you know, th things like that. Um, I guess a different one, Rothbard, uh, in terms of his political philosophy, was pro-choice arguing that, you know, the woman's body is her property. And even if we want to argue that a fetus inside her is, is a human life, Rothbard said, that's not the essential thing. The, the issue isn't when does life start? He said, the issue is, you know, sovereignty over your body. And, uh, you know, if you don't want this other person connected to you and drawn your bloodstream and blah, 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 then you have the right to sever that connection. And that's unfortunate if that kills the fetus, but Hey, you know, so that's the kind of thing where I just, I do think that's leaving something out and you know that from a christian perspective i i don't endorse that line of reasoning even though i understand why rothbard's arguing that but i, I just don't think that's correct um so i guess those are those are two examples i i'm trying to think um i guess i'll do it this the one thing i have noticed is in conventional economics there is this idea that consumption is the end all be all 
and work is merely an onerous means to an end. And so that, you know, it, it would be bliss if we didn't have to work and just could consume. And so there's a sense in which that is like, well, no, I was going to say that I used to think that was like the Garden of Eden, but then I, I went to this conference um, on, on, that was combining like a biblical worldview with, you know, economics. And they pointed out that, no, God gave chores to Adam. You know, he had to go name the animals and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So it's actually not correct that work per se was invented after the fall. It's just, you know, you might argue scarcity was was invented, but I mean, certainly backbreaking work <laughs> happened after the fall. But it's not that, you know, in other words, it, it wasn't just that Adam did nothing but consume in terms of, you know, so I, I do think that there is a lot of, you know, and that's kind of built right into the nature of economics itself and its modern guys, both mainstream and as far as the Austrians are concerned, that I, I do think from a Christian perspective, that's that's not right. Very good. Thank you for that, Bob. Um, just to change direction a little bit, I'd love to go back in history a wee bit and talk about uh, your politically incorrect guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal. So in this guide, you reveal the stark truth about the free market uh, that the free market did not cause the Great Depression and the New Deal did not cure it. Can you tell us a bit about these um, myths that are kind of built into the American mind and um, why they're still so widely held today? Okay, sure. And I guess this is going to repeat some of the stuff I said before when you were asking about Keynesianism. Um, so yeah, the at least the way it's taught, you know, I learned this growing up in school. And I'm sure most Americans heard some version of this is that, oh, what happened in terms of the Great Depression is during the 1920s, there was totally unconstrained free markets. You know, this was before a lot of federal agencies existed. So it was wildcat, you know, stock speculation and things. The market was booming, then it crashed in 1929. And then this guy, Herbert Hoover, was in charge and he was this small government orthodox man who believed in the Constitution. He refused to do anything to lift a finger to help. And, um, you know, so things just spiraled out of control because of his small government views. And then thank goodness FDR was elected in 32 and he came in and instituted the new deal, you know, boosted government spending, had all sorts of um, supports into, you know, agriculture and industry and whatnot. And that finally got us out of, you know, got us out of the great depression. So that's wrong. Like I said, theoretical grounds, it's wrong, but also just empirically uh, for example, on its own terms, okay, FDR, is elected in 32, he gets sworn in in early 33. The unemployment rate was still in double digits in 1941. You know, so it, had, it went down a little bit, but then it came back up. So it shouldn't, you know, even on its own terms, the New Deal hadn't worked yet after eight years. So how, you know, how long is he supposed to be given? Um, and you can, and people say stuff like, oh, well, it's because the, the hole he, he inherited from Hoover was so big, it took that. But I mean, you can compare it to like Canada and, you know, they like, Canada's improved its unemployment rate way faster than the U.S. did, for example. You know, so, so it's, I'm just saying there's any kind of a comparison you want to use. Clearly, that was the longest prolonged slump in U.S. history up to that point. So my argument was, what would the record have to look like for us to think the New Deal prolonged the Great Depression? Because certainly on the face of it, it broke all the records. You, you know what I mean? Like, in other words, it's if you thought the New Deal actually was harmful and prolonged the misery and delayed recovery, isn't this what the numbers would look like? You know, so we just sort of have this narrative that no, it would have been even worse, but we don't know that. All right. So that's, that's one of the things I, I point on the book, just showing the numbers. And like I said, just looking at the numbers, Herbert Hoover initially increased spending. He initially had, 
a big huge or a big increase in the budget deficit um and the in the new de- the new dealers are just re- reduced to saying well it wasn't big enough but again it's like okay but previous presidents didn't do anything close to that so it's it doesn't really work to say the reason the great depression happened is because herbert hoover increased deficits only a, inadequately well, how come with the previous presidents who didn't do it at all shouldn't have been even worse than the Great Depression? So they don't they don't explain that. Thank you for that, Bob. I want to talk to you just uh, briefly about your politically incorrect guide to capitalism and some of the stuff you talk about in there. So, and um, why should a, a genuine advocate for the downtrodden uh, not endorse the welfare state? Then I guess it's similar to what we've been talking about. And how does that uh, dehumanize and actually disintegrate the Christian family? Uh, and then I guess we, we can maybe differentiate between the nuclear family and the the broader Christian family, which seems to be slightly different traditionally, but people do t- seem to want to link them together. I don't know, maybe you'd be able to t- uh, tell us more about that than I would know. Okay, sure. So um, again, it's the, it's understandable that people want to help the poor, but I would argue that government programs to do so are unjustified, both, you know, on, on moral grounds, but also just pragmatically speaking. So again, in terms of morality, how is it that, you know, you voting for rich people to have more of their money taken against their will and given to social programs, that's not moral on your part, or that's certainly it's not obvious that that's as moral as you giving your own money. And if the argument is, oh, no, no, we all want to do this. Like any any good-thinking person, you know, any right-thinking person with decent morals, and we think that's most of the people in this country, are fine with this. And we all want to pay, you know, we, we, we gladly vote for politicians who are going to, okay, but then you don't need to do it through the government, right? If it really is the case that the vast majority of people don't object to money being taken out of their paycheck to help fund food stamps, well, then why do we have to go through Washington, D.C. to do it? Let's just have it be voluntary. And so then if they say, well, because then, you know, maybe there'll be a shortfall in funding. Okay, so you're admitting people don't want to do it voluntarily. So, you know, make up your mind, which is it? But if you really do think it's not coercion to run it through the government, then run it through a private charity and you, you know, quickly see, you know, call your bluff. Um, And then beyond that, like you say, you're alluding to, in practice, the way this is administered when it's, so I think it's, it's much better if charity, charitable, um, you know, assistance is rendered via like the church, for example, to people that are local and on the scene, because if it's, you know, somebody's loses his job or whatever, he has a health issue and he goes to the church and says, Hey, I, you know, my family's hungry. I lost my job. They can provide support or whatever, but they're going to be, the church is going to want that guy to get back on his feet and get a job. Whereas government agencies that, you know, have case loads and things, their budget is tied to how many people receive the assistance. And so it's the, you know, the actual incentives built into those things, like the people running government aid offices, strictly speaking, they benefit from not solving the problem. So I'm not saying any, you know, somebody who happens to be a social worker working for the government, I'm not saying they're Machiavellian and, you know, behind the scenes trying to sabotage their clients, but I'm just saying in terms of the institutional framework that, you know, that's, the, the agencies grow only if the perceived need for them gets worse. And so that's, you know, that, that's, that's a problem with that. Uh, another example is just in practice, at least historically, the way, uh, you know, so if you, if you were in the U.S. and you were a single mother, you'd be, you know, qualify for a certain amount of benefits, you know, from the government. 
but if you got married, then those would get cut. You know, and you can understand the logic to say, oh, we want to provide help to, you know, unwed mothers because they're the ones who need it the most. But if you just think through the logic of that, that's crazy. So like you're actually actively discouraging women from getting married who are going to have kids, right? And then other people, other people would argue that led, you know, having that fallback to know, oh, if I get pregnant, I can still have the baby and it's fine. I don't need to marry the father because I can just apply and get a bigger check, you know, with, with food stamps and blah, blah, you know, WIC and all those programs that are involved. You know, it's, I'm not going to be living in luxury, but it's, it's feasible, you know, these programs made it feasible that you could, you know, have kids out of wedlock and live off of the taxpayer effectively. And so the, you know, the question is, is that really, are you doing a favor for them in the long run by giving them that option? Probably not. And, and that certainly has, is part of what goes on with the story and the statistics in terms of the breakdown. I don't know the demographics in other countries, but yeah, in the U.S., the statistics are pretty alarming about the percentage of children born to families like that don't have two parents, you know, that just explodes over time. And it, I think goes hand in hand with the creation of the federal welfare state. Mm. And the, just on that point of the nuclear family, this is something that I'm just getting more interested in now. So is it fair to say that, um, so-called nuclear family is more in line with some of those things that are actually mistakes in how we view the economy from a Christian perspective. So say that we're just consumers and so on, that um, something similar has happened in, with the, the more recent uh, construct, if you want to call it that, of the nuclear family versus a, a, a more kind of rich a notion of the Christian family and marriage so on we have the extended family members different generations living together whereas that doesn't seem to have been the case in recent history it does seem to have been the case in more traditional Christian societies um, maybe you can help us just draw some distinctions there I, I don't know sure so that's probably another example of how the assumption of providing for the indigent and the sick and the elderly by the federal government, and I guess to a lesser extent, the state governments, why that could have had a, a harmful effect. So I think, you know, again, I, I only unfortunately can really speak to the U.S., but but yeah, certainly in the U.S. context, you know, in the 60s, they have Medicare come in and so now the federal government pays the health care expenses for the elderly, you know, regardless of income level, just period, everybody gets their health coverage now from the federal government once they hit 65. Um, and so it, it becomes more feasible, you know, for grandma and grandpa to live on their own, you know, because they're getting checks and they, in social security and whatnot. So I, I think that helped um, get, get us to this idea in, in U.S. culture where it does seem like, oh yeah, the people in the household are just the mother, father, and the kids grandma and grandpa don't live with you. They live somewhere else. And certainly your your aunt and uncle don't live with you unless there's some weird situation. So, you know, partly it could just be rising living standards and people wanting to have more room to themselves. But, but I, I do think that, you know, what traditionally would have been, you know, uh, an extended family living together because, oh yeah, it's, you know, they come in and when, when, you know, when grandma and grandpa can't take care of themselves, they come back in, you know, it, I think that that gets reduced when, oh, we'll just ship them off to, you know, some, some facility somewhere. And especially if the government's picking up the tab. Um, so I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I, I do think that there's, there's that element and certainly in American society. I mean, I actually don't know because I, 
this is the world I grew up in, but I imagine there is something that's lost that, you know, younger kids, for example, not benefiting from the wisdom of their, you know, only seeing their grandparents occasionally instead of like having them right there, I'm sure uh, is not helpful for their their moral upbringing. Hmm. Thanks for that, Bob. And um, I'll not keep you for too much longer, but just uh, before we go, could we speak briefly about chaos theory in this um, more fully free society, particularly from a Christian perspective again, because you often have people that will um, take certain parts of the Bible without maybe the proper context and use it to say, oh, well, um, the Bible clearly condemns anarchy and so on and uh, misinterpret what we're actually talking about when we talk about Christian anarchy or even anarcho-capitalism, things like that. So they'll say, like Romans 13, that mm-hmm. often show up. Can you tell us about what are some of the mistaken assumptions that people have about um, anarchy here? And um, why is it not wrong to in- embrace some form of what you said, voluntarism and things that got more so than anarchy, uh, maybe if we're being precise? Can you tell us about that? Sure. So uh, there's a couple of different ways of doing it. So one way of looking at it is to say um, what you might do, the, the, you know, the move I, I could make is to say, if you want to use the term government broadly construed, just like the, in the sense that, oh, within the household, there's government, like the parents lay down the rules and the kids have to follow them. And you can, you know, if you want to say that's a, that's a form of government and to say like, in a the type of society envisioned by somebody like Murray Rothbard or that I paint the picture of in my booklet chaos theory, there are, there are still judges, you know, there's still legal cases. There's still law and there's laws they're enforced. You know, there's things that are like prisons, there's military. So someone looking at that society would find it's very orderly. And I would argue like someone committing homicide would be contained and neutralized. I don't mean that euphemistically to mean killed. I mean, actually like the threat being neutralized would happen much more swiftly and assuredly in the framework I'm envisioning than it happens right now, where the state is the one in charge of, oh, don't worry if there's a crime, if there's a murder, we'll go get them when there's plenty of murders that go unpunished every year right now in the real world under the state providing us with justice. Okay, so in that sense, I would argue, you know, I could just argue and say the kind of stuff going on in Romans 13, what he's arguing, but I would just say this is a particular, like, Paul did not have in mind when he wrote Romans 13 of a bicameral legislature and, you know, uh, checks and balances in the Supreme Court and a a representative democracy. That's not the kind of what he thought of as a government. And yet modern American evangelicals certainly think the U.S. is exactly the kind of thing that's supported by Romans 13, right? So, So I'm saying by the same token, I could just argue, well, yeah, what Paul's getting at is there needs to be authority figures who can punish lawbreakers and you have that in my system too it's just a different mechanism to provide you know quality and so on just like the u.s has elections like imagine if you told paul that women get to vote in our system he'd probably what are you out of your mind right and so that's that doesn't you know that doesn't necessarily mean that the u.s system is unbiblical right another thing too with romans 13 is a lot of american evangelicals who point to Romans 13 to say, ah, these notions of anarcho-capitalism are crazy because God, you know, picked the rulers and they're there, you know, serving God's will. And they had no problem supporting U.S. troops to overthrow Saddam Hussein. And says, well, wait a minute. Didn't God put Saddam Hussein there? Like, isn't he the, the ruler of a... So whatever arguments one uses 
to reconcile, you know, regime change with Romans 13, I could likewise say, right, and the U.S. federal government clearly is not obeying the Constitution, so it's illegitimate on its own terms, and therefore it's not a rightful authority, you know, that, so, so that, that's a tack, too, that I've, I've seen some Christians use is to say Paul is referring to legitimate authorities in that passage, and so if you don't think that the modern course of state is staffed by people who are the legitimate authorities over people, then you know, that's why it doesn't fall there. So I guess those are the the ways I would handle it in terms of that. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I don't know Do you want, if you want to say more on that train of thought. No, that's excellent. Thank you, Bob. I think that's good. And your work more generally does clear it up. So just before we go then, um, is there anything else that you're working on at the moment or that you still feel the passion to get involved with in the future? So right now I am wrapping up this, my latest project has been a, uh, a book for the Mises Institute called Understanding Money Mechanics. So we're, we're releasing it serially, you know, one chapter at a time, we, you know, I'll write it and then we'll, we'll go ahead and release it on the website. And then once the last chapter's out that way, where they're going to, you know, compile it and make a physical book out of it as well with all the finished chapters. And so that's just, um, as the name suggests, it's from, from a modern perspective, just teaching people the, the fundamentals of money and banking, but uh, taking into account things that have changed like since the canonical treatments in, in Mises and Rothbard. So just for one example, the way in the old books that banks uh, expand credit and the money supply, some critics have said that's actually not how it works in the, in the real world, that those, those textbook stories get it, they get it backwards. That in reality, banks go and make loans, then go find the reserves to fund it, whereas the traditional story has like, you know, the, the central bank injects reserves, and then banks go lend it out. So one of the chapters in my, this new book that I have coming out from the Mises Institute looks at that and, and tries to assess, you know, is this, is this a valid critique or not? And it kind of gives the nuanced take, take on that. So the, the answer is to not leave you guys in suspense. It depends what you're holding constant. So yes, if the central bank wants to keep a certain interest rate as its target, if banks, commercial banks go and make more loans, they need more reserves, that pushes up that target rate. And so the, the Fed wants to keep it down, it's got to inject more reserves. So that's true. But on the other hand, if the Fed doesn't inject more reserves and is happy to let the interest rate go up, then the banking system can't create reserves on its own. So then the, the older textbook story, you know, goes through perfectly. Yeah, brilliant. Um, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Bob, and I'll link all of your uh, your works and your website and your podcast and everything in the description. Okay, thanks for having me. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.